Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. So, welcome back to Resilience Unravels. And today, a new guest, Jeff Holt is his name. And he's sitting in front of me, looking all glorious and gorgeous on his computer screen. And he works or has run an organization you want to go find out a lot more about, which is called Wet Wheels Foundation, which sounds absolutely fascinating. But first of all, good morning, Jeff. How are you doing? Good morning, Russell. Yeah, good to see you too. I'm really well, thank you. Good, good, good. And I can tell from your accent, you're across a different pond. So you're obviously in England somewhere. Tell me where you are. Yeah, we are, oh, I am tucked away in a village called Wallington in, uh, uh, in Fareham, which is very near to Portsmouth. It's on the south coast of England, sort of metres, if, if you will, from the, uh, the water. Very good. And actually, having known that now, I mean, literally, we could have done this through our bedroom windows or something, through the office windows, because we're probably in about eight miles apart. So this irony of this, isn't it? So great, Jeff. Thanks for... Amazing. What's that? Sorry? I said, uh, yeah, technology is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, good. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what is it you would describe how you... How, how do you describe what it is you do? Well, uh, for those people that haven't heard of me or know of me, um, I describe myself as a a seafaring adventurer. Um, that all sounds very um, swashbuckling, doesn't it? it does. um, I guess I guess it's in, important to make it clear up front for those that don't know that I'm actually a wheelchair user. Um, I'm paralyzed from the chest down. Um, I broke my neck in a swimming accident in the Virgin Islands 36 years ago this year. Wow. Um, so I've spent the vast majority of my life in a wheelchair. <clears throat> but sailing and boating and the water has, has been my life. It was before my accident and it has been since. So um, I'm very much, I'd class myself as a, yeah, an adventurer um, and someone who wants, his, spends his life trying to get as many disabled people as they can to experience the, the freedom of being out on the water. Wow. Okay. Well, you better take us through the story of how you got from there to here. So, yeah. so please unpack it for us. Yeah. So, yeah. So what were you, what were you doing? Before, what were you doing before the accident? How? How? You know, what, what no. was the life meant to be? I was one of these uh, young people who left home at sixteen because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I jumped on a sailboat. Right. Um, and over the next two years, I sailed the Atlantic Ocean several times. I worked for some um, some very wealthy people on some enormous boats in the Mediterranean and, and in the Caribbean. Um, and I took the, the dream job when I was 18. I was going to be the youngest skipper in the Virgin Islands wow. of a luxury charter sailboat. 
Um, I flew out to the Virgin Islands. I joined the boat, completed my paperwork, went to the beach um, about an hour later, ran down one of the most beautiful beaches in the world called Cane Garden Bay in Tortola, um, ran as far as I could, water got to my knees, um, dived forward like you see them doing in Baywatch, um, trying to be all macho, um, and I hit my head on a sandbar uh, and it broke my neck. Um, I was 18 and a half years old. Um, they eventually flew me, they flew me to Puerto Rico and then, um, without getting into the politics of it, the government wouldn't fly me home. So eventually uh, there was a mercy flight that got me back to Salisbury in England. And I spent the next year in hospital. And um, uh, uh, so that was a long time ago. I was a young lad. I'd, you know, I'd, um, I'd achieved quite a lot by that age, you know, 35,000 miles at sea. And here it was taken away from me. So it, that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, I mean, this, it's, the, it's that thing about the single random action that sometimes happens in people's lives that, you know, has this it's, devastating it's consequence. I guess it's kind of a, a, almost a metaphor for life in many ways. It, it's that, you know, it's the uncertainty of life, isn't it? You mm. don't know what's around the corner. Um, you know, uh, he, he, here's one for you. So I spent a year in hospital and I left with my nurse, Elaine. And Elaine wow. and I have been married 34 years now. Yeah. Um, and had I not had the accident, I wouldn't have met Elaine. So, yes. so I'm not saying necessarily a believer in things happen for a reason, but yeah. I am a believer in you know, doors open in your life and, and you, you come across junctions in your life and things happen. And, um, you know, I, you, I've, I've learned over the years, as we'll be talking about in a minute, how to, um, you know, take advantage of those um, and actually capitalise on them um, and, uh, and end up not just living, but actually, you know, not just surviving, but thriving. Yes. And I guess, and, and you know, I talk to many people on these podcasts and, um, you hear this um, accident or issue or illness or whatever, and then it seems like this very seamless rise to glory and fame afterwards. But people often don't realise that there's a lot of dark days, aren't there? There are, you know, in order to be resilient, you've got to come back from something. So, do you want to talk us a little bit yeah. through some, some, you know, some of the gritty, bit, the, the the less glamorous bits, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, one has to understand that I went from an eighteen. 19 year old lad to someone who relied on personal care 24 hours a day yeah. you know i need to be lifted in and out of bed i need to be washed and clothed and fed and all of those things and you start you have to learn to live your life again and yeah. people only ever see the you know the, the smiley jeff now yeah. um in they and they hear of the amazing things that i've been fortunate to do but they don't see that hard work and you know, I, I realized at an early age, I could spend the rest of my life living at home on benefits, state benefits and the government, or I could get off my backside and actually go and do something. So I retrained in, in computing. This was in the late 80s when yeah. you know, no one had heard of a mobile phone and computers were only just becoming um, popular. And I trained in, uh, in, in, in database management and I got a job with a firm. They were a little known firm at the time, but many people will know the name Deloitte. Um, and I worked for, ended up working for Deloitte for 20 years. And, and I became head of marketing and business development for Deloitte um, in their southwest offices. So that, the reason for telling you that is that that enabled me to achieve my aspirations of, you know, becoming financially secure, um, buying my first house, holidays, marriage, you know, um, all of those things, starting a family. 
Um, and all of that, you know, I remember the, the early days of getting up at four or five in the morning, my wife getting up so she can get me up to get me to work. And no one sees that. Um, and, yeah. um, and it, uh, it, it's, and it's also, you could argue it's quite private. You don't want everyone to share yes. every moment of that journey. Yes, yes, I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. But and it's and it's the relentlessness of it as well, isn't it? It's you know you have these days of glory and such like. But actually, every, it's like every single day, four o'clock, as you say, or whatever time it is, that you have to do that routine. So, so where do you get that? I mean, where do you suspect or where do you think you get that energy to to have that grit, to have that determination to do what needs to be done? So I, I believe, and I have asked my question this before. Um, I believe partly because I was able-bodied for so you know for 18, 19 years, yeah. um, and and I had a, a an, a, an almost a, an oblivious understanding that um, I would if I wanted to achieve something I could. So suddenly having this um, disability forced upon you, um, I, I I just found it incredible that anyone would discriminate against me, yes. um, and so. I guess there was, and, I, and I, I have thought about this, during my days of working for Deloitte, I would quite deliberately, when I was feeling poorly or having a bad day, I would still go into work because I never ever wanted someone to be thinking, yeah, he's disabled, you know, I understand that he's disabled, he wants, yeah. you know, he can't, can't make it like everyone else. Mm. And so there was this, this private, element of, of me trying to prove myself that I was as good as anybody else right. um, but in reality you have to try twice as hard yes. and they don't see all the the, the the stuff in the background of course they only yes. see um, you turning up for work every day and, and I guess that kind of then led into my sailing I was doing sailing um, as a hobby um, I got back into disabled sailing in the early you know, in the early 90s Right. Um, because it was something, it was a passion. It was a real passion, and and it felt like when I was take had the accident, it felt like a bereavement, and yeah, it would. you know, not being able to get back in a boat. It was my life. It wasn't part of my life. It was my life. It was your life, yeah. and uh, it was taken away from me. And um, so that was a momentous moment when I got back in a boat for the first time mm. in uh, in 1991. So, without seem, seeming to ask is something really trivial, but how 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 does it work with a wheelchair on a boat? Because I'm guessing you're not talking about the QM2 here. You're talking about something smallish, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a absolutely, um, you're, it, it's good to be able to explain this because people do art, think to themselves and they don't ask. So the first boats that I was sailing um, were little sailing dinghies. So um, it's something called a trimaran. So right. a trimaran has three hulls. Um, it was 15 foot long. Um, so maybe a bit longer than your dining room table. Um, and... I sat, was lifted, I had to be lifted into the middle hull, and there was only two controls. And there was a, what we call the main sheet, which is one rope, and that pulls in the sail over your head. So that's like the accelerator. Yeah. And there was a, a little metal bar in front of me, which was the tiller, which steers the boat. And I would wrap the rope around my arm, put it in my teeth, pull it in to pull the sail in, and steer the boat um, with the tiller. Um, and that Challenger Trimaran was my introduction reintroduction back into sailing and once i was back in that boat and i realized i could do it on my own yeah. no one was telling me which way to go i was making the boat go faster slower that was like an epiphany to me and i realized then that do you know what uh, i 
I need to get back on the water. It was my life and, and I missed it. And, um, and I'm jumping a bit, but, uh, but, 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 later, but, but before you do, just, just, to, just to just jump, jump in there, because you can sense that liberation, but I'm guessing there are a load of risks as well. And sometimes you have to do the risk management piece, don't you? Because, I mean, if you, this thing flips over, I'm guessing that might not be great for you. Yeah, yeah. And I've fallen out of a boat. Um, I've fallen out of a boat three, three times. Really? Um, so, um, you know, I'm still here to tell the tale. Yes. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. They're, now, in trip, this is a really interesting point. Um, so, yeah, there comes risk. Someone asked me once if I was, um, if I was reckless. Someone asked this question, are you re- is it reckless what you do? And I, and I got quite cross because, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, um, and I don't, would never do anything to jeopardise my life. Mm. Um, so it is about managing risk. It's absolutely about managing risk. Um, and interestingly, um, in years to come, when I was to do some quite high-profile sailing, you know, I sailed around Britain and across the Atlantic. Wow. Um, when I did those, I needed sponsorship. Um, and sponsorship, they, they, what they want in return is, is they want column inches in the papers. Yes. They want, you know, minutes of you on television. Um, and the only way you're going to get that, this, this is quite an interesting point, there's like this, you're walking a very thin line between jeopardy and, and safety. Yeah. And ultimately, they want to know that the worst case scenario is you could be hit by a killer whale and eaten by sharks, um, <laughs> you know, hit by a hurricane. Um, and that's the story they want to hear. Yes. And you'll, give, you'll tell them that story. But meanwhile, on the other hand, you've got everything covered. You know, I never yeah. sailed in strong winds at the time. You know, I had the right life jacket. So it's a good, good question, though. I'm hoping it had some of that Batman shark repellent spray as well. Do you remember that from the 60s? Goodness me. <laughs> what do they say? That as long as you can swim faster than the person next to you. Next to you, yeah. <laughs> That's like putting your training shoes on the jungle, isn't it? So you're out there under bear or whatever it is. So, so you talk about these amazing achievements. So come on, blow your own trumpet. Tell me some more of these things. Yeah, you've so uh, in 1991, uh, 92, um, I sailed, my first big project for me was to sail around an island called the Isle of Wight. Now, I appreciate many people won't know where that is, but it's off the south coast of England. Um, it's, it's the mecca for yachting. It's where the America's Cup was first ever raced in the Solent um, off the Isle of Wight. And, um, and it's, you know, I can see it. I look out my window and I see the Isle of Wight every day. It's 60 miles, 55, 60 miles to sail around the Isle of Wight. So I sailed around the island in my dinghy, um, this 15-foot trimaran. Um, and it was such a, I got back after you know, a few hours and I thought, wow, I could do that again. With a good night's sleep, I could do that again. Um, and then I started thinking, well, if I sailed 60 miles, slept, 60 miles, slept, 60 miles. Um, if you think the way I do, mm. look, before you know it, you're sailing around Britain. Yeah. Um, because it's one, it's one and a half thousand miles around Britain. So it took me, crikey, 10, 15 years to get to that point. Um, I found sponsors. I found a crew. Um, and on, in May 2007, I set sail from uh, South Southampton um, and on my first massive challenge, which was to sail around Britain in this little 15-foot dinghy. Um, I, I did it. It took uh, 110 days to get round. Um, I visited 51, 51 harbours around the country. So that's 51 starts, 51 stops. Yeah. Um, there was me my wife and my five-year-old son in a motorhome, uh, an RV vehicle. We'd never been in one before in our lives. Yeah. And uh, when we moved a five-year-old child into it, 
my, I had a crew minibus, a uh, crew motorhome uh, for four members of my crew. I had a Land Rover and I had um, my own private rib support boat. So this whole, what we called, the, we called it personal Everest. And then that, that set off in May and we got back in September wow. uh, that year. And without yeah. doubt, even today, I've done some other things, but without doubt that, that sits there at the absolute pinnacle of what I did. Yes. And, and I mean, the thing is, people realise we're a small island, but we've got some pretty challenging coastal waters, as, um, you know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's the North, it's the North Sea. It's North the sea, Irish yeah. Sea and the North Sea. I mean, yeah. it is. Uh, it, first of all, I should say the country is, one, it is beautiful. I thought I knew England and Scotland very well, but I didn't know it quite as well as I thought. It's stunningly beautiful. Um, and I got to see it at nice slow speed. And, you know, every night we had these 51 stopovers around the country. Um, Tremendously treacherous. There were a few very significantly dangerous bad times. The weather was just foul, yeah. um, and uh, it very nearly capsized me a few times. And, um, and and it was challenging. And you know, I was every day. I was cold. I was wet. I was tired. I was hungry. All that stuff. But people don't want to know all that. They just want to yeah. uh, know. Jesus, how did you do it? Um, and I'm not sure everyone anyone will ever quite do that again. Mm. And then. 18 months later, I decided... Before you... Be, when I was if, young, if, I, if I can just jump in for a second. Talk to me about when you'd finished it. Because a lot of people, when they finish or achieve a goal, they go through this sort of slump, don't they? And this is another form of resilience, isn't it? You know, the people don't understand this thing about the resilience you need actually coping with success. Because often you come down from this high. It's a bit like when you're in a, um, a, a musical show or something, the show wraps... Um, you achieved this massive goal. Tell me, tell me about how you dealt with well, all that. Yeah, I mean, to understand that, you, if I can just go back a bit then to the resilience of going around Britain. So, um, you know, there was one period, for example, for three weeks, I was stuck in a harbour in Wales. And I, every day I had the, new, the, 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 the media on the phone to me saying, have you finished? Is this over? And my sponsor saying, what's going on? And my crew saying, what's going on? And I had to I learned then to really, really dig deep. I mean, really dig deep. I, the easiest thing to do then was to call it off and say, do you know what? You know, it's too tough. I'm disabled. It's too windy. And everyone would have said, Jeff, that's fine. But I couldn't have accepted that for me. So all this, this pressure was building and building and building. And um, one thing I did do to take some of the pressure off, and this is, I guess it, it helps with resilience, is I, I delegated. I've always been a bit of a control freak. And I, I think anyone who will claim to be resilient has, has an element of being a control freak about them. You like to micromanage. We like to, uh, you know, we're, we're the, the masters of our destiny. And I realized I needed to delegate on this trip. And when I did, it did take some pressure off me. Um, that, was, that, that delegation was about making decisions about whether we sailed or not. Yeah. Um, I obfuscated those to, uh, to, my, to my skipper. Um, so, 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 so people often talk about digging deep. So how did you do it? How about um, this digging deep me mean? Digging deep for me was not sleeping for three or four days, lying awake, wrestling with the rights and wrongs, wrestling of wanting to do the right thing by my crew, by my sponsors. Right. It was pressure, the most significant pressure I think I've ever felt Parallel to all of that, I'm still having to be looked after every minute of the day by my wife. And so all of those disability factors around, yeah. you know, what you can and can't do. And I have always, always called upon, when I was in hospital for a year, 
um, it seemed like it was never ending. I, that was my first first experience of entering a tunnel or entering a forest, if you like, and no light. Yeah. Because I didn't know what was at the end. Um, and I just didn't know when there was the uncertainty. And I guess there's a parallel now with COVID, isn't there? Yeah. You kind of, you know, we've entered this period of uncertainty. And, and that is, that plays heavily on people's minds, whatever your age, yeah. sex, race, religion, um, we, we deal with it in different ways. And it wasn't, when I got out of hospital, I remember really clearly that feeling of, do you know what? Things do get better. Yeah. There is light at the end of the tunnel. That tunnel particularly was a year long. Yeah. Um, and I, when I sailed around the Isle of Wight, the smaller one, I remember thinking, is this ever going to end? And, and when it finishes, there's, whenever you finish uh, a project of that magnitude, whether it's a year in hospital, sailing around the Isle of Wight, sailing around Great Britain, there is a release of pressure. Mm. And it is an overwhelming, when I fit across the finishing line in Southampton in 2007, I was looking forward to the day the BBC were there with the cameras and they came out on a boat and they're interviewing me. And I crossed the finishing line and all the horns went and there was, you know, people cheering. I burst into tears. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know where that came from. I had no idea. And all I remember saying was, the, the BBC said to me, what next? And, uh, and I quoted Sir Steve Redgrave, who won the Olympics in 2012. He said, um, he was rower. He said, if you ever see me again in a boat, you have my permission to shoot me. Yeah. And, um, and I just said that, and I was blubbing. And I thought, where's this coming from? And I realized it was this relief of, I've done it. Do you know what, I've done it. They said I couldn't do it. I've been told it's not possible. I believed in myself. I truly believed it, and it, it happened. And then, from you know, I know this is made a lot of English analogies here, but in, I can't remember what year it was that we won the, the Rugby World Cup. And uh, Johnny Wilkinson, when you mm. see him holding his hands and looking at the posts before he kicks that final ball, um, it was all about visualizing the end game. Yeah. And I realized then that I'd stumbled across this. I hadn't been taught it. No, I hadn't read it in a book. But I'd stumbled across this, this ability to visualize the end game, visualize crossing the line, visualize completing something. And no matter how, it just makes life more, whether it's right or wrong, I'm able to cope with things better. Yes, I'm not sure if that answers your question or, or raises more questions. Well, no, because actually, so this is the this sort of two points. First, it's interesting how you're motivated by told you can't do something. And I think a lot of people with resilience do have that slight, um, I want to be polite, how do we put it? Um, <laughs> you know, sort of contrariness, yeah, yeah, yeah. stubbornness or whatever it might be, because it's a really good thing, isn't it? But the second thing is, so you cross the line a week later, then do you do that massive slump when you go back to real sort of original life almost? Well, I've made myself some promises when I crossed the line that life was going to change. I was going oh. to... I declutter my life because I lived for a hundred days in a motorhome with nothing. Yeah. And it was some of the hundred as happiest days of my life I could remember. Yeah. We had family, we had friends with us. It was just lovely. No phones. Yeah. Um, there was no phone reception. There was no newspapers, no radio. Yeah. And I said, we, I'm going to get back and declutter. Every, all of this stuff is going. Um, of course, it never happened. Um, you slip straight back into... Um, I was kept quite busy because I was immediately doing a round of media um interviews and press stuff and so continually it was on your mind on your mind and i was yeah. being asked regularly what next what next what next 
I did take myself away um, and I shut myself away for nearly three months and I wrote a book. Um, and that was very cathartic because yeah. it wasn't just about, um, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to plug it, but I, so it, because it was part of that process of coming to terms with what I did. And, yeah. and so it was very cathartic to get it. It was the story of my life. It wasn't just sailing around Britain. It was the story of my life. And I needed to get that out and I needed to get it told. Um, my son was born. So my son was born in 2002, Tim. Um, and he was five, six years old when we got back. So I'd say there wasn't, there wasn't really a slump, but it would, if there was an emptiness, it came three or four months later. Um, and that's when I kind of started to think, what can I do next? And that's a, that's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not convinced that that's the right mentality for adventurers or any trophy hunters to yeah. say, I've done something, what next? You're always asked, what next, what next, what next? If you're going to do something next, this is my belief, it has to form part, it has to be part of the narrative of your life. Yes. And what I mean by that, and that is quite, and I'm not going to name anyone individually, but I know, I know people, friends who've been injured in, uh, in, in, whilst in service in the, in the Middle East, um, and they've lost limbs and they've, they've become disabled and it's horrific. Um, they have quite quickly gone to, into the Paralympics. Um, they have then climbed mountains. They've then, what's next? I'm going to the South Pole. There's all these, what next? Highest, longest, fastest. Um, but what's the narrative to that? What, what, yes. How does that fit into your life? Into your life, um, yeah. And I've been absolutely clear that sailing is the, the being on the water is the thread from the moment I could eat, speak and breathe. I was on a boat, you know, I left school. It was boating. I had an accident whilst working near a boat. Um, I helped set up a national sailing charity for, for this is many years ago for sailing. Um, and then I sailed around Britain. I did, and then I did the Atlantic ocean. I haven't no time necessarily to mention all of that, but I did the Atlantic in 2010 on a much bigger boat, a 60 foot catamaran in my wheelchair. Um, and so I realized that whatever I do, that narrative has to be true to me because it's no longer, when I sailed around Britain, it was about me. It was selfish. It was a vanity project, you could say. Um, I get back and there were thousands, literally thousands of emails and messages from disabled people saying, you've inspired me to go sailing or you've inspired me to do something. And yeah. I suddenly realized that what I'd done, what I'd, what I'd created is some responsibility to my kindred spirits. You know, my, my fellow yeah. disabled people have, had seen someone with my disability and buck, buck the system. Um, and, and through bloody mindedness and, you know, sheer hard work and determination, I've managed to achieve something that many people may never, never achieve. Yes. They were, I'm always a little bit careful. I'm, I don't, when people say they've been inspired by what I do, I don't hold myself out to be a role model or, you know, I'm, I'm far from it. But if people feel that they have taken something from my experiences and it has helped them in some way, yeah. then who am I to, to question that? Yeah. But I did realize then that I've had this massive following. Um, and so when I, sailed the Atlantic in 2010, it was very much, the, the, the message was different. This wasn't, look at me, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm sailing the Atlantic. Yeah. It was, why don't you look at disabled people in a different way? Why don't we look at this boat? The universal design of this boat means I can sail it. 
um, why aren't we getting more disabled people out having lived life experiences, high value experiences? Um, and sorry, I, I, I can waffle on for ages. You can tell it's a passion of mine. I can. No, and tell us about Wet Wheels Foundation then. Tell us more about that, because I'm guessing that's sort of culmination. I'm going, we're going to skip quite a lot of your life out, which I'm sure people will be able to find. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, but yeah. you've so, obviously created something, which is your... So I, get back, I, get, so I get back from the Atlantic... Mm-hmm. Um, and now this, you know, I've now sold Notion. So now this is global. This isn't just Southampton or Hampshire or the UK. Globally, people have seen what I've done. And I am getting, you know, at the time, emails, phone calls on a daily basis. How can I get on the water? How can I get on the water? I, they might live in all different parts of the world. Um, well, I can't change the world overnight. But one thing I could do was understand how we could change things here in the UK. And we've got 240 sailing charities in the uk wow. 240 which, which is incredible yeah. um and but i know for a fact that they there are disabled people who are excluded from that not for any other reason there's two well there's two reasons one they physically want to stay in their wheelchairs and there's no there's no sailing charities in the uk or very there's only one in the world i think where you can go in your big electric power wheelchair People will challenge me on that, but I will push back straight away. There is not um, a sailing charity where you can go in your heavy electric wheelchair. There's also nowhere where, and a lot of people who use heavy electric wheelchairs are often at the end of the spectrum. They they are the most profound and complex, what we call PMLD, so profound multiple learning disability. These are young people who are coming from hospices, who are coming from, you know, special education needs, who are who have life limiting disabilities. Yeah. So they cannot go on a sailboat. So you've got those people, and then you've got the people who just don't want to go sailing. Yeah. And not everyone, my wife included, doesn't want to get on a sailboat yeah. and go left, right, and then it's windy and it's not windy. And they want an hour, ninety minutes on the water, yeah. um, having some fun. And I realised then that the 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 important bit was getting on the water. It wasn't the sailing, it was getting on the water. And I had to think, how can I get these people on the water? And I looked around and there were no power boats. There were no big boats with engines on to get these people on the water. So um, I part mortgaged my house. Um, uh, Suzuki Marine helped me with some engines and Ray Marine with the electronics. And a company called Cheetah Marine helped, did me a deal on the boat. I mean, this is a 200,000 pounds. So you know, thick end of $260,000 uh, boat. And I got that first boat in 2011. Um, and the, one of the things I wanted was that it had to be a shared experience. So it had to be big enough to take mum, dad, brother, sister. Um, it also, everyone, and I mean everyone, had to be able to drive the boat. Yeah. I wanted a, a boat where someone with a profound disability could go under the steering wheel and for a moment in time, they could be captain of wet wheels. Of course, my, my, my skipper holds the throttles and holds the wheel, but they're in the captain's seat, in their wheelchairs. Um, and so we created Wet Wheels. And um, to, without boring with all the history, so that was 2011, I started with one boat um, and we took 300 people that first year. Um, two weeks ago, we launched our sixth Wet Wheels oh, boat brilliant. in Falmouth. Um, and we're now taking over 8,000 people a year on the water. Right. Um, and 80% have never been on the water before. Yeah. And no one else is doing this. No, no one else in the world is doing this. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Princess Royal, so Princess Anne, the Queen's daughter, is my patron of the charity. Um, and I'm 
as you as you can as you tell, I'm I'm passionate about it because it just enables people to get into that maritime environment for a moment in time um, with their mums, dads, brothers, sisters, share that experience. And we know that that helps build confidence. We know it helps reduce anxiety. Right. Um, and I could not have had, I, I get more pleasure from this than I can tell you, that satisfaction of sitting back, just making it happen. Um, I mean, it's got a whole wrapper of resilience around that that we've not even talked about. You know, each boat, £200,000. Each boat costs £60,000 a year to run it. You know, that I'm, I'm raising, I had to raise over a million for the boats. Wow. Um, and I do that on my own. You know, yeah. And it's not easy, um, but it's, it's hugely rewarding. Yeah, that's fantastic. So tell me, Jeff, how can people find out more? Well, I guess the, the, the first and foremost um, is to go to a website called wetwheelsfoundation.org. Um, and that, that's the National Charities Foundation uh, website. So that will direct you to your local um, um, operator. Um, and for those in the UK, we, so we have Yorkshire and Whitby, uh, Whitby in Yorkshire, Dover in Kent. We have two in Hampshire on the South Coast, one in the Channel Islands and one in Falmouth in Cornwall. Yeah. Um, and we would love to help get people out on the water. And we've got some great Facebook pages as well. Just type Wet Wheels into Facebook. Um, yeah. And you will see all of our operators on that. Yeah, there's a real joy on people's faces. I can see how it would be great for mental health and confidence and, you know, all that. The key stuff, thing to it? mention is you can, you can watch the videos, you can look at the pictures. Nothing, nothing mm. um, sets you up for that moment on the water. So they pot around the harbour. We go around the harbours and we spend 30, 40 minutes. Isn't that nice? And look at that. And maybe you'll see a dolphin or a seal or something. Mm. Um, and then you go out and then are you ready? Bang. Mm. And all of a sudden, you know, there's people doing 30 knots um, on a boat, which is, you know, the boat will go faster, but we limit it to 30 knots. Yeah. And the, the squeals of joy um, and genuine, even people who can't articulate themselves um, verbally, mm. will, you'll see the smile on the face and, um, and it's worth a million dollars. Right, blimey. Well, wetwheelsfoundation.org is the place to go and even if you just want to help in a small way there's a donate button that i see there and um, you can find out more about jeff and the work he does and um, i didn't realize you were right across the uk but i see you are so that's brilliant jeff you've been a, a joy to talk to today i've been absolutely fascinated by it and I, you know it's a very practical story and um i can't you know I'm not going to say you're an inspiration because you get uncomfortable with all that, but you know, what you have done is, you know, sort of, it shows what's possible for people with the, the, the cognitive skill to be able to dig deep, to have that stubbornness, you know, to have that cause. I, think I'm, I should, I cannot complete a story without saying it. Elaine, my wife is very much part of the story. Yes. Um, she's the hero in all of this because you know, what you're looking at today and what we're talking about, you know, we haven't seen Elaine getting up at four o'clock this morning to help me get ready for this. Yes. And she's the, she has the little quiet role in the back, but she's, so we're very much a team and, um, and I'm, you know, and I wouldn't get where I, I maybe there's a bit of my mindset that helps me, um, you know, with my attitude. Um, but I'm lucky to have good people around me. And I think that's the case. It's an important thing. It's, it's no one does anything really in life on their own. It is that who's your posse, who's that, Who's your team around you? And that's, that's vital. And you're right. It's, just, it's, it's astonishing how many significant others are there for us who quietly get on with it in the background, you know, without all that other stuff that goes on. 
Lovely. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank Take you. Take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.